0: Welcome to the Semper Reformata Podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Can you imagine what it would be like if you left your church for no reason of yourself and went abroad for a while and returned again, maybe eight or ten years later, I wanted to find that the church that you had belonged to is now full of new people. People who are running the church and have different culture and different language and all sorts of different ideas that you had. And can you imagine if you joined a church and you were happily worshipping and getting on with everyone, and then all of a sudden this crowd arrives in and they say, Hold on, this is not your church, this is our church. Back at the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were a great multitude of people from all nations in Jerusalem. They heard Peter preaching, they witnessed the preaching of the gospel, and they witnessed that in their own language. In fact, they were amazed, and in chapter 2 of Acts, in verse 8, it says, "'How hear we, every man, "'in our own tongue wherein we were born, "'Parthians and Medes and Elamites, "'and dwellers in Mesopotamia "'and in Judea and Cappadocia, "'in Pontus and Asia, "'Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, And in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. And they were there in Jerusalem and they heard the gospel and many of them must have repented of their sin and gone straight back to Rome when their pilgrimage, when their Passover pilgrimage was over. And there they formed a little church. Little Roman church full of Jewish people converted to Christ. Then came the events that happened under the Emperor Claudius. When Claudius ruled in Rome, he expelled all of the Jews from Rome. They were put out, they were banished, and the people who were the Christian Jews, the Christians of Jewish origin were banished along with them. But the church continued. There were Gentile converts now. And the church continued to worship God in the city of Rome. And the Gentiles were worshipping. And then Claudius died. And the Jews were permitted back. When they came back, there was some conflict. People started to ask questions. One of those questions that they asked must have been, well, if you folks were Jews and you had all the promises of God given to you, why then did you reject the Messiah? Can't you hear that question being asked? Suddenly there's this big influx of Jewish Christians. And the Gentile Christians who are sitting worshipping God are now saying, hold on, you're back here now. We've been worshipping here now for all these years and you're here telling us that you're the true church. So what's the relationship between these Jews, Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians? And why did the people who these Jewish Christians call their kinsmen in the flesh Why did they crucify the Messiah? Basically that's the question that Paul's going to get to grips with. In this chapter of the book of Romans. There's no doubt in Paul's mind. That the Jews were God's chosen vessel. There's no doubt in Paul's mind. That they had a special place. In God's redemptive plan. To bring the Messiah, the anointed one into the world to be a people in whom all other peoples of the world would be blessed. But he's equally certain in the chapter here that the faith group known as the Jews were no longer representative in total of the new Israel, the true Israel. And that's the message running throughout this chapter there was always an outward Israel a large group of Jewish people so most of them apostate small and a remnant of faithful believers now these Gentile believers have been engrafted in into God's kingdom and into his family and together with them, these Jews who have trusted Christ and these Gentile believers who have been engrafted into God's people are together the new Israel. And that's the point that Paul's making in this chapter. So we'll look at it just for a moment or two. And then maybe in a fortnight or so's time, we'll move on to chapter 10. I want you to see Paul's witness to these people. He starts off the chapter by saying, I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. A very deep sorrow. Paul has a great anguish. The first thing that Paul wants to say to this church where this division and tension is taking place, is that he's saying this with great sorrow. He very greatly regrets the fact that God's ancient people have rejected him. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bears me witness. Paul's sincerity is on display here for us all to see. It's beyond question. He is deeply concerned about Israel. And the Holy Spirit is guiding his conscience in the matter. And he's tormented by it. It's on his heart. It's on his mind. He has great sorrow. He has continual grief. He has great despair. And the indication of how deeply he feels about this matter comes in verse 3. He says, I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. What a great, what a great depth of sorrow that must have been. If only such a thing were possible, Paul would give up his own salvation if only his brethren in the flesh would be truly saved. his They are his kinsmen. They are his brethren in the flesh, according to verse 3. You should mark that. They were not brethren in the Lord. Not coming, hadn't come to Christ. They were his relatives, his people to whom he was tied by bounds of nationality. Becoming a member of God's family through Christ does not exclude us from our normal ties of kinship. How many parents must have felt as Paul feels here. How many parents have agonized in prayer over their children and their families. How many parents have almost said to themselves, Lord, I would even be accursed myself if my children and my children's children would be spared and saved. True depth of prayer. In the next chapter, in chapter 10, Paul reiterates this. When he begins the chapter by saying, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. The target of his anguish is Israel. Look at the way he puts it to them here in verse four. They are the Israelites. To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all. Think of the blessings, the blessings that Israel has had. Look at them, count their blessings. They are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption. They had been brought into God's family. They had seen his glory, having been set free from bondage in Egypt, having been adopted as God's children when they didn't deserve it, when they were slaves and no. Better than slaves. They were brought into God's family through his grace alone. He chose them and he led them into the wilderness. And he revealed his glory to them by day and by night. And to them are given the covenants and the law and the service of God. God had provided them with the Ten Commandments. He had given them the law by which they could please him. And knowing that they could never please him and never reach his standard, for they were sinners and he was holy, he'd given them the worship of the tabernacle and the temple where they could go in to the presence of God and they could see enacted before them the drama of redemption as the lambs and the animals were slain and the blood was shed and they would be shown in visual graphic form what, how God was going to wash away their sins in Christ. Whose are the fathers? And of whom concerning the flesh Christ came. Amazing. What an amazing history of redemption the Jewish people had. All the way through the Old Testament, God revealing Himself to them and preparing them for the day that Messiah would come, progressively revealing His plan of salvation until Isaiah even told them how that Messiah would win their hearts and souls by dying for them. And yet, on the day when Pontius Pilate stood before them, with Barabbas on one hand and with Jesus on the other, what did they say of Christ? Crucify him. We want Barabbas. Crucify him. They have all of that blessing. And yet here they are as Christ rejectors. So how are we going to rationalize that for these people in Rome? How are we going to explain that to the Gentiles? And how are we going to unite these two groups, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians? Well, Paul begins to ask a series of questions throughout the rest of the chapter. And as he answers the questions, he takes them logically through a doctrinal position where they will understand the nature of the true Israel. The first question he asks then is in verse 6. He says, has God's promise failed? If the Jews have rejected their Messiah after all the promises and the covenant blessings that they have had, has God's promise failed? This is Paul's classic argument about Israel. If God has promised blessing to Israel, and then Israel has rejected that blessing, does that mean that God's promise has been made void? Does that word mean that his word is untrue? Paul says no. For you see, God's promise has never fail. God's promises were never made to a nation. They were never made to a state. They were never even made to a political party. That can't be. God's promises were always made to his people. I want you look very carefully at verse 8. For there is the crux of the matter. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. The children of the promise are counted for the seed. Just because you were born a Jew and circumcised at the appropriate time and brought up with all the traditions does not make you a child of God. Those who inherited the promises were those whom God had chosen to be his. Paul makes a difference. A vital difference between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. We're talking about two separate groups. There's always been two or maybe three Israels. There's always been the physical descendants of Abraham, of Jacob. Of course, then there's the modern state of Israel, which is a secular uh, humanistic state. And then, of course, his spiritual Israel, his spiritual people. I know you don't sing choruses, but if you did, we would sing, Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, only it would probably give us all a heart attack when we did the the actions. Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 28 reinforces this. He says, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Paul uses two illustrations about this. He talks about Abraham's family and he talks about Isaac's family. He talks about how God gave his promises to Abraham's family. But he didn't give them to them all. He just gave this promise to one of the children to Isaac, who would carry the blessing of God upon him. And, of course, that dispute's going on right to this very day. Then, when it comes to Isaac's family, as he chose Isaac out of the family of Abraham, so then he chooses Jacob out of the family of Isaac, because God's purpose and election must stand. And, of course, that passage culminates in those words which are repeated several times in scripture and which makes this one of the least preached on chapters in the bible in verse 13 where it says as it is written jacob have i loved but esau have i hated people have great difficulty with those words some people do their best to soften them and explain them away. But ultimately their truth has to stand. God chose Jacob. God rejected Esau. The Lord, in Genesis 25 and verse 23, The Lord said to her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. God's choice of any of these individuals does not depend on efforts or works or obedience but simply upon his sovereign grace. That applies to us as well. Being born into a Christian country or even a Christian family does not make us Christians. So the second question that Paul asks here, and asks the people in Rome to consider, is, is God unjust? First question, has God's promise failed? No, God's promise hasn't failed, because God's promise wasn't to the nations, to the state, it was to his people. And the families, even in the early patriarchs, were, there were some who were chosen and some who were not. But then is God unjust? Because immediately that unconditional election is mentioned, somebody will cry out, that's not fair. God is unjust. And so in verse 14, Paul looks at this issue. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Talks about the word of God to Moses. Verse 15 and verse 16 talks takes them back to the time of their own election, of their own salvation, and he reminds them of the interaction between Moses and between Pharaoh and tells us and reminds us that God raised Pharaoh up for a purpose, verse 17. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. God had raised Pharaoh up for a purpose, and yet Pharaoh was the oppressor of the Jews, of the Hebrews. What was it for? He had raised him up. He hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go, so that he would keep the people under bondage, so that God's own glory could be seen. Imagine if God had just simply softened the heart of the king and predisposed him to be a big softy and let the Israelites go and let them be released. We would never ever have known about God's deliverance at the Exodus. We would never have known about the Passover lamb and the sacrificial offering. We would never have known about the blood that was shed for sinners. God hardened the heart of the king so that he would not let the people go, so that it was God who did their redemptive work. So Paul argues, therefore, hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and on whom he will he hardened. The third question. Then, first question that Paul put to these people in Rome. Has God's promise failed? No, it hasn't. Is God unjust? No, he's not. Third question. Well, if that's the case, then why does God still blame us? Verse 19. Why is God blaming us? Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? You can see how someone might be tempted to ask that question. If God's word of promise is secure and never fails, if God is always perfectly righteous and never unjust, and if the promise has excluded some of the people called Israel, and that justice has determined who will be the recipients of his grace, then how can God blame us? How can he punish us? We have no choice but to be what we are. It's a very relevant question for today, actually. We have all sorts of people saying, well, I am what I am, and God will just have to accept me the way I am, for this is the way he made me. And if I prefer to marry a man instead of a woman or a woman instead of a man, then God can't blame me for that, for he made me this way. Paul answers it here. In fact, he doesn't. He doesn't even stoop to... Argue with such a person he simply says in verse nine and verse twenty Nay but O man, who art thou that replyest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it Why hast thou made me thus? We are just clay we have no right whatsoever to argue with God. I dare puny mortals question his eternal will and purpose. We're all sinners. None of us deserve his his mercy. All of us deserve his wrath. All of us are under condemnation. And yet in his mercy, some of us are the recipients of his grace. And that is all he has told us. And that is all we need to know. lastly, the fourth question. And with this fourth question, Paul takes a slightly different approach. It's found in verse 30. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel... Which followed after the law of righteousness hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Do you see whose fault it is that Israel's in the state that it's in? Do you see here why Israel rejected his, the Messiah? And Paul's drawing these arguments up in a logical progression and he's now drawing them to the close. And he's saying to them, whose fault was it that when the Messiah came to his people that they rejected him? Whose fault was it? Because these Gentiles seem to have grasped something that Israel has missed. The Gentiles, by faith, has obtained something that Israel, through their lack of faith, has missed. They have found that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Therein, says Paul, is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith, Romans 1 and verse 17. There's a vital principle tucked away in these last verses of this chapter, and it's this. The sinner who rejects the saviour is responsible for his own sin. How can that be? What shall we say then? How can it be? God has chosen his people. God has given promises to his people. Wonderful promises. And those promises have never been broken. God is perfectly just. God has chosen those who are his to be his. Among his people. So whose fault is it that Israel rejected the Messiah? It was because of their own unbelief that they stand condemned before the bar of God's judgment for the rejection of the Savior. These are parallel tracts, aren't they? One of the first books as a young believer I was given to read when I was in my 20s was that book by J.I. Packer, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. A very important lesson to learn. That God is sovereign. Yet man is responsible for his sin before God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. There are two great profound reasons here why the the Jews rejected their Messiah. The first one, of course, was because not all of Israel are Israel. God has sovereignly chosen those who are his. But the second reason, Is because they did not believe for the responsibility is on every man for whosoever believes in the lord jesus christ shall be saved so how do we summarize romans chapter 9 we might do no better than martin lloyd jones did He said in verse 6 to verse 29, Paul explains why anybody is saved at all. It is only through the sovereign election of God. And in verse 30 to 33, he explains why anybody is lost. That explanation is that they are responsible for their sin. So Paul begins the chapter with an account of Israel's privilege and Israel's unbelief, and explains this unbelief by arguing that it is not because God has not kept his word, for he has kept his word to the remnant of Israel who are saved. Nor is it because God is unjust, for the hardening of the hearts of some is not by any means incompatible with his justice, or nor is it because God is acting unfairly, for he holds all people to account for their sins, for all sinners deserve his wrath. He argues rather that it is because Israel is pride, and because they have pursued their own righteousness through their works rather than by faith. And so they stumbled when it came to the cross. Look at the last verse of the chapter. Paul says and reminds us that there is a stumbling stone laid in Zion. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Whosoever. Isn't it amazing? That the word whosoever is used in the context of God's election.